It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello, everyone, and you're listening finally once again to the Showtime Movie Podcast. My name is Show, and as always, we will be talking just about. Pretty much every movie that's come out since Tiff ended. First of all, I want to say I'm very sorry for taking so long to, well, release an episode. It's been quite some time. And actually, I was thinking about what I have updated you all on since the last episode came out, which was, I believe, the, I want to say, second Second week of September, that sounds right, right? Like the end of the second week, beginning of the third week of September. You know, I guess technically Sunday is <laughs> the beginning of the next week. But regardless, uh, that is when I last released an update. And it is now that same time in November. So it's been essentially two full months since you've last heard my amazing voice. I know you've all missed it so, so much. <laughs> but Quick update, life update. I promise it won't take super long, but I know I know everyone kind of hates when podcasts kind of go on forever about things that are not what you want to hear about. Because you 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 come here to listen about movies, right? So we'll get to the movies in a sec. But quick life update: uh, the hockey season started back in October, right? The beginning of October, right? And shortly after Tiff ended, I want to say even days after Tiff ended, okay, I was offered a position a new position at Sportsnet. I am now the the full-time Hockey Central at Noon producer, which is kind of cool. It's a television and radio program. It's simulcast in the States on NHL Network. It's all over Canada. It's replayed in Calgary and Vancouver. Very exciting that I get to be the full-time permanent producer of this TV show. I get to work with some of the best Sportsnet hockey minds in the country on a daily basis. You know, we, we book guests. We get... Coaches, players, executives, we got the commissioner on a couple times. It was Hall of Fame weekend recently. So all of that, that I guess that changed my schedule to my uh, day job as it is, kind of prevented me from getting in the studio and recording. And of course, football season is upon us. NFL, you know, it's Thanksgiving tomorrow. So American Thanksgiving, I should say, real Thanksgiving happened last month all those listening but <laughs> but uh, I want to I do want to apologize because it's unacceptable I do I did promise once every two weeks and you know even though it's been busy I feel like there were times where I could have come in the studio but I decided to you know I decided to take a nap instead because I work pretty late hours sometimes I, work, I do a lot of podcasting work for sports now anyways it's that's that sounds like a lot of excuse making because it is ultimately unacceptable and I'm really sorry to have been away for so long because not only do I love putting out this content, but I just like talking about movies. I like going to see movies, and I like interacting with movies and talking about them. And I think in the absence of this podcast, I've been talking essentially my roommate and my coworkers and my family's ears off. So all that to say, they won't have to suffer anymore because you get to listen to the podcast and the musings of show here on the Showtime Movie Podcast. So let's get right into it, okay? So if you remember... Last episode, we talked about TIFF, right? We had a TIFF roundup. To begin, we did 
a whole bunch of movies. We did The Predator, we did White Boy Rick, Donnybrook, Destroyer, The Sisters Brothers, and A Star is Born. So for this movie, and I actually realized, having going over that list, I said I only did like X amount of movies. I actually forgot one of the movies I saw at TIFF. So I think I had listed them at the end of the last episode. So just to remind you, the episode, the I should say the movies that we're going to tackle on this episode are going to be The Hummingbird Project, uh, First Man, The Old Man and the Gun. Those are not related. <laughs> Can You Ever Forgive Me? Widows and Green Book. We're going to talk about all of those movies on this episode for about five minutes each. We're going to do another quick, another quick hits. You know what I mean? Because I, I would say if, if you were to compare all of these movies to the movies from the first TIFF Roundup episode from last or from September, I should say, I think on the whole, these movies are better. You know, I think like I, I'm going to start with The Hummingbird Project in a sec here because I think it was my least favorite movie of the episode of the movies that I'm doing on this episode, but it was still really good. I still really liked it. Whereas I don't know that I really liked Donnie Brook or that I really liked White Boy Rick all that much. They were good at parts, but in, on the whole, they were kind of silly. And The Predator was almost like a, it was just a throw into Tiff to start things off. It was the first movie I saw at Tiff, if you guys remember. But yes, The Hummingbird Project, First Man, The Old Man and the Gun, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Widows and Green Bug. That was one more time, the list of episodes, or I keep saying I keep saying episodes, the list of movies we are going to be doing on this episode. So without further ado, for the first time in two months, let's get right into the movies, and we'll start with The Hummingbird Project. Like I said uh, just a couple of seconds ago, I think The Hummingbird Project was, even though it's probably the, my least favorite movie of the ones we're going to talk about on this episode, okay? Even though it was my least favorite, I still think this was sneakily one of the better movies I've seen this year. Truly, I put it first because, as I said, I like to start with those those worst movies and kind of work my way up, I, I suppose. But it's still pretty darn good, you know? It focuses on two cousins, Vincent and Anton, portrayed by Jesse Eisenberg and Alexander Skarsgård, who essentially embark on a project, which they decide to call the Hummingbird Project, to shorten the time measured in milliseconds, okay? In milliseconds, it takes to retrieve information on stock prices. So the reasoning for this is the shorter the time that it takes... So let's say you want to invest in stocks, right? Or you want to sell your stocks or buy stocks or whatever, right? If you can do it before anyone else... You know, because stock prices are regulated by the amount of people trading on them. So if if you get to do them before I get to do them, then you probably will make more money because after you make your trade, the price adjusts itself, right? And so these information is man are managed by funds and banks and all these all these different organizations around the world. So Jesse Eisenberg and Alexander Skarsgård, Vincent and Anton want to shorten that time, and the shorter the time, the more profitable the trades, and that could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So essentially what they decide to do is they decide to drill a line through hundreds of miles deep underground, and of course they, in- they encounter tons of trouble with homeowners and obviously with nature itself along the way, okay? So that's kind of the, the bare-bones plot. Uh, some other co- the, the co-stars of the movie, along with Skarsgård and Eisenberg, are Salma Hayek and Michael Mando, who most probably remember from Better Call Saul, which is pretty amazing. Uh, they co-star, you know, Hayek is their former boss, and Mando is their foreman during the construction of the line. And they're both am- pretty amazing, although the primary actors of Eisenberg and Skarsgård, and we'll get there in a second, but they're the heavy lifters, okay? To go back to the plot, though, it's pretty bare bones. The message is a, is a good one. You know what I mean? Like, how far should we go to extract 
more from life? How far do we go in, in pursuit of your goal, right? Do you alienate coworkers? Do you alienate your friends, your family? How far do you go? And, and when you do go farther than you ever have gone before, at what point is it no longer worth it, right? Is it when you're sick? Is it when you've destroyed buildings or the earth? How do you know, right? Is it is it really worth it in the first place at all even? You know, all you're getting is money. So is it worth push, pu- pushing yourself to the point of death for like a million dollars, a couple of million dollars? I suppose the argument is if you've never had that, you'd be willing to try. But as the movie shows... I don't know. It may not always be a good thing for you, your friends, or your family in the long term. But the real bit of this movie that shines, okay, the, the part of this movie that you really are going to go see it for is the acting. And like I said, Salma Hack and Michael Mando are pretty good, but it's Jesse Eisenberg and Alexander Skarsgård who are really, really good, right? Vincent is the fast talker, the one for whom words are his weapon, and Anton is a kind of, kind of this hunched over, slow hulk of a man, right? He's a genius when it comes to coding and engineering, but he's kind of socially awkward, right? And Jesse Eisenberg really made that whole fast-talking thing work for him in movies, like even The Social Network, which is probably one of the best movies of the century, honestly. And he's awesome again, and I do hate to see him typecast, but he makes it work so good, and when he's, you know, like, quote-unquote on, it really works for him, right? It's so good. He's so entertaining. I love it, but the star of this movie, to me, bar none, is Alexander Skarsgård, okay? He is amazing. Most of my experience with Skarsgård has actually been via HBO's True Blood. You thought I was going to say that Nicole Kidman one. Um, I want to say, what is it called? Uh, something Little Lies, I want to say. But anyways, I don't watch a lot of TV, to be completely honest. And I watched True Blood with my ex-wife, so don't tell anyone, please. But... Uh, he really is a fantastic actor, and I, I wish I had found this out before, right? He really just disappears into the role of Anton with such depth. It was hard for me to even tell it was him about ha- until about halfway through. Honestly, I remember people in the audience being like, oh my god, that was Alexander Skarsgård at the end of the movie when they look at the credits. It was pretty fascinating and very cool to watch, honestly. He was really good. His portrayal of Anton Zaleski should should earn him a Best Supporting Actor nod, even though it doesn't result in a win. I hope he gets nominated, though. He deserves it. Truly, he deserves it. Uh, the other notable thing about this movie was the director, Kim Guyen, born, born in Montreal. It's always refreshing for me personally to see Canadian talent behind the camera. That was a huge reason I wanted to see this movie in the first place. I'm convinced, even though I can't find any definitive information on it, that there were more of a couple of the, more than a couple of the, you know, quote-unquote big city scenes, the ones they, before they go out to the middle of nowhere, they were filmed here in Toronto. I, I don't know for sure, but at the same time, like, I do know, you know, it was pretty cool. But in all, in all seriousness, a lot of this movie was filmed in Canada, whether it was in Quebec or here in Toronto, and it was pretty cool. And ultimately, to wrap things up, is this movie going to be up for consideration for anything outside of something for Alexander Skarsgård? Probably not, which is why it's the first movie we're going to talk about. That doesn't make it anything any less enjoyable, though. I think it's a wholly fun ride. Has a pretty satisfying conclusion, especially for Anton Zaleski, Alexander Skarsgård's character. So, if you want, if you're just interested in maybe a, a pretty thin, maybe, maybe that's a bad way to phrase it. If you're interested in seeing something entertaining, even if it has a thin premise, I think you should go see this movie because it's cool. It's funny. It has some great moments, some satisfying moments for everyone involved, even Salma Hayek's character, who is essentially the antagonist, right? So I think you should go see this movie because at the end of the day, it's cool to see Canadian talent, and this is one of the ones you're going to see with Canadian talent 
both in front of and behind the camera in 2018. All right, let's move right along into the next movie that we're going to tackle on this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. So without further ado, we'll get into the latest movie brought to you by Best Director winner Damien Chazelle, his latest First Man. We've chosen a job so difficult, requiring so many technological developments. We're going to have to start from scratch. You know, when I first heard that Damien Chazelle was making a movie about Neil Armstrong, I swear to God, I thought it was about the jazz player. You know, I did not think in a million years it would be about an astronaut, you know, about Neil Armstrong, the astronaut who, along with Buzz Aldrin, were the first two men to land on the moon, if you believe that, unless you believe this movie is all propaganda, in which case, please turn this podcast off right now because you will not like what I have to say. Uh, about people who believe in the the idea that the moon landing was a conspiracy. But, no, that's a joke. I, I, I mean, I don't believe that it was a conspiracy, and I think that's a silly thing to think. But this movie is, in fact, about the moon landing, about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's trip to the moon and how they got to be astronauts in the first place. Although Buzz Aldrin is kind of an afterthought in this movie, to be completely honest. I believe... It's really, I mean, I don't believe, I I know because I saw the movie, that it's really just about Mr. Armstrong. And I don't know, this movie is, this movie is fascinating because it kind of reminds me, it kind of reminds me of Dunkirk, okay? Dunkirk, if you all remember, was from last, last year's kind of Oscar darling of the summer, Right, everyone's saying it's going to win Best Picture. It's going to be nominated for a million Oscars. It's going to win this. It's going to win that. And you know what? Of those statements, the statement that it was going to be nominated for a million Oscars was true. It was nominated for a whole bunch. Pretty cool. But I don't believe it won all that much. I think it only won two Oscars. I'm not going to check right away because I'm pretty sure that is the case. I want to say it won like a film editing one and a sound editing one. Maybe it won both sound editing and sound mixing or film editing and something else. I It won some mixture of the film editing ones and the sound editing ones because it deserved them. It absolutely deserved them. That, the, that movie blew me away with how it was cut, the perspectives that were shown, and the sound of like the jet engines and of gunfire and the silence that was used. The, the music, everything about Dunkirk in the technical aspect was brilliant. It was so good. And to tie it back to First Man, that is exactly how I feel about First Man. It is the, the, the part of the movie that is about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin being in a tiny metal capsule that in previous tests have blown up. You know, that part of the movie is so fascinating because it's it's so vividly shown. You know, the camera is shaking. You're watching out of the, the, the tiny, narrow, fogged-up viewport. You can't really see anything. It's hard for Neil to see the instruments as the whole cockpit is shaking. You know, everyone's kind of nervous and scared. You know, they can't really reach things. Like, there's a scene early on in the movie where they, go, they don't go to the moon, obviously, right away. So they're practicing. They go into space. And the whole, I think the practice uh, simulation was them docking with something that had been launched from a satellite or from an unmanned space space mission around, you know, in orbit. So they're going to go, they, this thing launched, they're going to go meet it and then practice docking in space, right? They do it successfully and something goes wrong and they start to plummet to the earth with this thing attached to them. So they're about to die for sure, right? And what, what happens, of course, Neil Armstrong and his amazing skills for flying kind of save the day. And I find it so interesting because it perfectly captured the idea of isolation 
the the picture of isolation, the picture of disorientation that you would imagine you get if you're stuck in a tiny metal box hurtling down through the atmosphere, right? Everything is shaking, like I mentioned. It's so well portrayed. Similarly, when they're on their way to the moon, you know, like all you can see all the zero gravity scenes, all that stuff. Fantastic. I'm, I will never knock that part of First Man because that is easily the best part of the movie. All of the rest of it is just so boring. Oh my God. The rest of First Man is so dull. Maybe I should have put First Man now that I'm thinking about it before the Hummingbird Project. It is just shockingly dull. I want to see this movie at TIFF and I swear to God I almost fell asleep. Like, it's not bad. Ryan Gosling, who plays Neil Armstrong... And Claire Foy, who plays Mrs. Armstrong, they're fantastically, they're fantastically well cast. They give up good performances, but it's just, a lot of it is just dull, okay? Like, it, it, there's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of smiling or laughter. It's just a lot of worried, concerned look from Neil to his wife, and then worried, concerned look from the wife to Neil, and then they do it again, and then they, then they, then the scene cuts, and then Neil gives a worried, concerned look to his fellow astronauts. They just do it so much that I just, I kind of lost interest. And even though it's sad, you learn in real life, Neil Armstrong's daughter passed away. It was hard for them to deal with. There's a scene in the movie where uh, Neil Armstrong kind of puts his daughter's bracelet into a crater on the moon. I don't know how true that is. You know, I feel like it was also filmed in a way that could suggest it didn't happen. You know, maybe maybe it did. Maybe that's a factual thing that happened. But as someone who is not exactly a student of Neil Armstrong's history, I'll take that as face value. It seems like something that could happen, also something that's a bit of creative license. But regardless, the interpersonal parts of this movie are the worst parts of the movie. And that's bad because it's about Neil Armstrong, the man. It's not necessarily about, like, it is about his journey to the moon, but it's not necessarily only about that. You want to learn about him as the person. You know what I mean? And I think in that, it succeeds, but maybe it's just because the guy's life was kind of dull. Maybe it's because they did it in a dull way. I'm not sure. Maybe it needed some more creative flair. Maybe Damien Chazelle felt that it should be more grounded, considering that they're going to the moon. You know, maybe that was the juxtaposition there. And if that's the case, okay, that's fine, but that doesn't make it any more exciting. You know what I mean? I think this is going to be a movie that Come awards time, and I know I've said this before, we shouldn't look at things only in the lens of will it win something, will it not win something. Art, it, it's, it's an art form movies, right? So as long as your, your, your piece of art says something, that's probably all that matters, right? It doesn't necessarily, you know, I, you would like for it to be good and for people to think it's good and for people to think, you know, pay money to go watch it because you want to be able to keep doing things. But I, I don't know. I guess I just, I know I'm guilty of saying, well, it's going to win this. It should win this. It should not win this, blah, blah, blah. I know I'm guilty of doing that. But at the same time, these kind of movies, especially the ones that are at TIFF, are kind of like Oscar bait, right? They're not, they're made to be art, yes, but they're also made to garner awards and like create recognition for the people who who make them both acting and otherwise, right? So all that to say that First Man really succeeds and is a, when it comes to the technical side. It's a very technically impressive movie, but the acting 
is just okay. Claire Foy is the only one who I would even dare put in any of the awards nominees race. Like, I don't think she'd win because we're going to, as you heard me talk about in the last episode with Lady Gaga and A Star is Born, she probably deserves to win. But at the same time, Claire Foy, no slouch, and she's amazing. I saw her in The Crown, loved her as Queen Elizabeth in The Crown, but I loved her even more as, the, as Mrs. Armstrong in this movie because she was really damn good. She is the one who's the standout, not Ryan Gosling, even though I know Ryan Gosling is kind of like Damien Chazelle's muse, and I would love to see him participate in more movies with him. But regardless, I am excited to see what comes next for Ryan. I mean, obviously, he's like an A-list actor, but I'm excited to see what comes next from Ryan Gosling and Damien Chazelle. But I don't know that first man is quite La La Land or Whiplash material, if if, if that's how you're looking at it. You know what I mean? Also, before I wrap things up, Neil Armstrong passed away in 2012, okay? And Buzz Aldrin is still alive. And I find it interesting because Neil Armstrong is like this kind of quiet, very talented, humble man. And when you meet Buzz Aldrin in this movie, he is an asshole. Like, he is he is not... They, they, they go out of their way to make you think that Buzz Aldrin is a dick. And I kind of wonder... I wonder about that. I wonder if Buzz Aldrin thinks that... That's okay. Maybe he signed off on it. Maybe he was like, yeah, you know what? I was a dick. Maybe, maybe that was the case. Maybe he is still, I don't know. The man is, uh, the man is 88 years old. His birthday is actually only two days before mine, funnily enough. But, uh, it's just a funny little side thing that he was such a dick in the movie, considering you think he's supposed to be this kind of wholesome astronaut, right? But Hey, what do I know? Again, like I said, I'm not exactly a student of, of, uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's history, but as far as first man goes, technically impressive, narratively super boring. And if that's okay with you, like if you like Dunkirk, you would probably like the first man. If you didn't like Dunkirk, I would probably just skip the first man entirely. Okay, let's keep chugging right along. We're actually already to our third movie, only out of six, so we're almost halfway uh, halfway through, right? So this next movie is a... Uh, we're going to slow things down, right? The Hummingbird Project and First Man were kind of grand ideas. Grand things happen in these movies. Big ideas, you know what I mean? They go to the moon, they're drilling through the earth. This next movie, I feel like, brings it back down to earth a little bit. It's a very personal story, a very humble story, even if it's about a larger-than-life idea. Not a lot of larger-than-life things actually happen in this movie so without further ado let's get right to it the old man and the gun so uh what did you say you do well that's a secret and why is that well because if i told you you probably wouldn't want to see me again who said i was going to see you again would you well let's take this place say it was a bank and instead of that counter up there that was really a teller's window and you just walk in real calm so you walk right up Look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun, like this. And you say, I wouldn't want you to get hurt, because I like you. I like you a lot. So don't go breaking my heart now, okay? (sighs) You're not serious. I'm not exactly someone who's super old, right? I'm not even 30 yet. I'm pretty, I feel like, not to, not to be like, yeah, so look how young I am, but I just mean, what, what what I mean by that is, despite being a bit younger, I feel like I have an appreciation for a lot of the older actors. And that doesn't always come through with my friends, for example, right? Like many of them only have a passing knowledge of 
Paul Newman, let's say, right? And Paul Newman, I mean, if you're a fan of movies, everyone knows who Paul Newman is, right? The guy was classically handsome. He was a super famous actor. I loved him in Slapshot, but I loved him in everything else, Butch Cassidy, right? And I mentioned, I mentioned Paul Newman in particular, and of course, Butch Cassidy, because the other star of that movie, Robert Redford, is the star of Old Man and the Gun. And that's kind of where I'm going with this. I love Robert Redford. The guy's a treasure, right? And he has been slowing down in his movie making. I always thought it was really cool that he was in The Winter Soldier. And I know I know everyone kind of, maybe you'll have your own thoughts on the, whether the Marvel movies are good. Maybe they're just typical superhero movies that are just slightly better than what they used to be. Whatever that case may be. I love that he was in The Winter Soldier. I thought he brought, like he lent some some authenticity to that movie almost, right? Not that it was bad. It would have been bad if it was anyone other than him. But Robert Redford brings this kind of gravitas to, to any role he does. And I've always loved that because he too is incredibly attractive and has this kind of like charm about him, right? And I, if there was ever any actor that I thought could play who is the, who is the Robert Redford of today, it would have been someone like Harrison Ford or mm, Brad Pitt, let's say. Maybe Brad Pitt's a better example because he's a little younger than Harrison Ford. Not by a lot, but still, by, by a little, right? And Robert Redford, like I mentioned, has been slowing down in his movie making Partially, part, partly because he is getting a little older. I believe he needs, he's in his 80s now, or at least close to it. And it was rumored that before Tiff that The Old Man and the Gun would be his last movie. As far as we know, it is right now. Even director David Lowry, who spoke to the audience before the screening of this movie, when I saw it at Tiff, even he said he's not sure that it'll be his last movie. He's pretty sure, but he's not sure. And so that if it was his last movie, he was happy that he got to be the director because he wanted to send Robert Redford off with a love letter. And I think, I'm not going to spend too much time on The Old Man and the Gun because that's essentially what this movie is. It is a love letter to Robert Redford. So if you are indifferent about Mr. Redford, just skip to the next part of the rev- the next review in the movie. Skip to... Skip to uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Because that's the movie we're going to do next, okay? But The Old Man and the Gun really is for fans of Robert Redford. It's for people who appreciated his acting. It's for If you've ever liked any of his movies, just give this one a watch. It's a pretty short film, all things considered, you know? It's it's very entertaining. It's just, it's very it's very charming, I feel like. I don't know. It's just, it's just a movie that... That, that, that gets you in spite of the fact that not a lot happens, okay? And I'll read you the, the quick synopsis. This is the synopsis from the actual on the actual film's website, right? At the age of 70, Forrest Tucker makes an audacious escape from San Quentin, a prison, conducting an unprecedented string of heists that confound authorities and enchant the public. Wrapped up in the pursuit are Detective John Hunt, who becomes captivated with Forrest's commitment to his craft and a woman who loves him in spite of his chosen profession. And so that that is, I mean... That's essentially the that's essentially the movie, right? It's just very pure, I guess. It's it's so easy to watch. And I think that's why I like this movie so much. It's short, it's it's charming, it's easy to to ingest and to to break down. It's just all of those things and it's in large part due to the performance of Robert Redford as I mentioned, who gives this as he always does this effortlessly charming performance, right? We get Casey Affleck as John Hunt, the aforementioned detective. We get Sissy Spacek as Jewel, who is the uh, woman who loves him despite the fact that he is a criminal. We get uh, Tom Waits as his kind of grumpy partner. Danny Glover is the other grumpy crime, you know, criminal. I was going to say criminal. (laughs) That's completely wrong. But you just get 
so much so much fascinating acting from all of these veteran actors. I mean, Casey Affleck is an Oscar winner. I mean, I don't know if it, I, he's certainly not as veteran as all of those other actors I just mentioned: Robert Redford, Danny Glover, Tom Waits, Sissy Spacek. But it's just so interesting to watch them all interact with one another, and the 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 chemistry, the on-screen chemistry between Redford and Spacek is just truly, it's just adorable. I love it. I love this movie. It's just, if this is Robert Redford's final film, I think it's a pretty fitting ending. I think it's a fitting way just for us to say goodbye because it ends on an interesting note. You learn throughout the movie that Forrest Tucker, Redford's character, has broken out of San Quentin prison many times. I forget how many times, truly, but it was more than 10. It was a lot. And... At the end of the film, they televise because one of the more interesting parts of this film is that it's called the old man and the gun because he rob he's a, he's a bank robber and he robs banks with this gun, which you never see. You don't actually ever see his pistol until the end of the movie, and it leaves the idea that is there a gun? Is he just so charming and so polite that the the bank the bank tellers never really look at the gun and they're instead just giving him what he wants because it's easier because he's so charming? Is that really the case? Because it, the the David Lowry does a great job of casting doubt on the fact that there maybe ever was a gun in the first place because as John Hunt the detective interviews more and more suspects, you learn that the cashiers and the tellers and all the people who have been robbed, you know, in their in their eyewitness accounts and their retellings of the story, they keep saying things like yeah, you know, you know, he was just so charming. I just felt like I just should just do it. I just felt like, you know, he, you know, what was the, the I'm not even really sure if he had a gun, right? And stuff like that. And so you then, you the viewer are become, become less and less certain if he has a gun as well. And that was really well done. I thought that was very fascinating because it plays off and even builds up the charm that Robert Redford so, like, so, like I said, effortlessly exudes, right? And then, of course, at the end of the movie, you learn he does have a gun because, of course, how would you rob a bank without a goddamn gun, right? So that I found really interesting. And, of course, like I said, the chemistry between Sissy Spacek and Mr. Redford are just, it's just so, 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 so good. And like I said, they, he breaks out of San Quentin a number of times, and they actually show all the different ways he's broken out. And it was really cool because, like we like we know as possible these days, they can do, like, de-aging things. But I'm pretty sure that... In the scenes where you see a young Robert Redford, because it's about him breaking out over the course of his life, right? You see him break out of prison at a very young age, like when he's like in his 30s or something. And I'm pretty sure it was just a clip from a movie he was in in the 60s, which was really cool, I thought. It was a cool way, again, to pay homage to this film legend, right? Who will probably get an honorary Oscar. Again, here I am with the Oscar talk, but probably get one at some point in his career, right? If he hasn't got one already. I mean, I know, like, apart from the regular award stuff, I feel like Robert Redford is going to get an honorary one as well. Kind of like Sidney Poitier did, right? I mean, he got one for a whole bunch of reasons, not not least of which he, he was he's black, right? And certainly he was the first black person to ever win an Oscar, which is really, really, really cool. Plus, he's an amazing actor, right? So in that same vein... For all that Robert Redford has added to Hollywood, I could see him going down the Oscar, honorary Oscar road if they ever were to decide that. But let's just say The Old Man and the Gun is the last film in his filmography. And if that's the case, you absolutely need to watch it. Don't skip this one. Three movies down and three to go, which means we are officially halfway through the episode. So again, I won't take too much of your guys' time with... These last couple episodes, I will, or the last couple movies on this episode, I will say that A Star is Born is one of my favorite movies I saw at TIFF, okay? 
And I saw A Star is Born before I saw any of these next three movies. And at the time, it was my number one, and it's quickly become the my fourth favorite movie. I like all three of these movies. These I think in order, this is probably my three, two, one favorite movies in terms of the ones I saw at SIF. I think that's also contributed to putting the movies on the back burner because I saw, what, like 12 or 13 movies in a couple of days, which is nuts, even for me. So that kind of has, I think that kind of contributed to taking a break from movies for a while. But no, I, I can never get too much of movies. How, what am I saying, right? But uh, I want to get to this next movie really quickly because as I mentioned during the review for The Old Man and the Gun, the next movie we're doing is the latest from Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Nobody is going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. I'm months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Craig, top her up. My suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living. Recently found this delightful sign letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly involve it, except a crime of fashion, of course? I feel like Melissa McCarthy is one of the more underrated actors of her generation. And... I know that sounds like a big thing to say, like a big thing, right? But the whole, the idea behind it is that with, with comedians in particular, right? And of course, Melissa McCarthy got her start as a comedian and she's so funny. Spy from 2015, still one of the funniest movies I've seen in the last 10 years. Like that movie is hysterical. But I feel like when you try and move from comedy to drama, right? Or comedy to, you know, quote unquote, serious acting, it's harder than moving from drama to comedy, right? Because I feel like, not not that they can't do it, not that they're not real actors, but I feel like the comedians are not taken as seriously, right? And we've seen a lot of movies over the years that have tackled that idea, like the idea of actors moving over to dramas and whatnot. They even talk about it in Tropic Thunder, right, with Jack Black. And I feel like with Melissa McCarthy... She has never really done anything super serious, right? Like, there's been a couple cameos here and there. But for the most part, she's stuck to comedies, right? And like I mentioned, Spy, really funny. Tammy, maybe not so much. Ghostbusters, not as bad as people say it is. But for the most part, she is stuck to comedies because she is really funny. But can you ever forgive me? I think is the first real role like that for her. She plays this author... Lee Israel, a real-life author, because the, the book, of course, Can You Forgive Me, or sorry, the movie, I should say, is based on a book. And in a nutshell, Lee Israel was a modest, modestly successful author. You know, she wrote books that were not selling super well. She was struggling with her rents. She was struggling to pay for drinks. She was struggling with money, money in general, even though she's a very, 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 very talented writer. And through one way or another, she discovers that she could forge correspondence between now-dead authors and their, I suppose, now-dead correspondents, whether it's their girlfriends or husbands or wives or, you know, family members, mothers, fathers, daughters, brothers, sisters, sons, whatever. I don't know why I said it in that order, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that is essentially 
why she decided, or she not why I should say that is the kind of the impetus for her discovering that she could do this. And so she decides to make a living out of it. She decides to make some money. She decides that because she is such a good writer, she can successfully mimic the voice of these now dead authors to their correspondence and pass them off as the real thing. So she essentially was forging. She got, she got really into the idea of forgeries and made a boatload of money because I guess really rich people will pay dearly for letters that are from, you know, author A to person B, right? And I guess the idea is she was so talented, like like I mentioned, she can mimic the voice of these people. And it's about how she kind of falls down that rabbit hole, how she discovers she's really good at it, and then, of course, later on how she is found out by the FBI, by the forgeries department, and, get, and gets arrested for it. And all this is a real story. It all actually happened. And I find it so fascinating because it's about... I feel like this movie at its core is about the idea of authenticity, okay? It's about the idea of if something is so real, if something seems so real, does that, and even though, even though you know it's not real, could it, couldn't it still be real? Like, what does it mean to be real? What does it mean to be authentic, whether it's something you write or you as a person, right? Something you say or or your personality. is. You, are, are you real? Are you being real? You know how people say, like, get real, man. Like, I feel like, even though maybe people don't say that as much anymore. Maybe only I say that. But I feel like that's what this movie is about at its core. Okay? It's about the idea of tackling... Or being someone of substance, right? And I, that, to me, is so interesting because if if you know something is real but it still provides the same value, doesn't that make it real? You know what I mean? I, I feel like they tackle this idea in sci-fi things all the time. Like, what does it mean to be human? Even if you're not, you're made of mechanical parts versus flesh and blood, can't you still be real, right? Yeah, I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> real. And so that that is the kind of the, the, the theme of this movie. And... It's anchored by two great performances. It's anchored, of course, by Melissa McCarthy and also by Richard E. Grant, who's been in a lot of different things. I want to say I remember him most from Downton Abbey, weirdly enough, even though I know he was famous long before that. But regardless, Richard E. Grant, Englishman, very, very like flamboyantly gay character in this. He's like her best friend who kind of helps her with all the scams and all the dealings and so on. And he's just such, such a delight to watch. Their friendship is so cool because... Lee Israel is a grumpy, mean person, and this guy is such a happy-go-lucky, even though he's, he's essentially a con man. But even so, he is, uh, you know, he is so charming. And, and charming in a different way than, let's say, Robert Redford and The Old Man and the Gun, right? He's charming, but you know he's kind of sleazy a little bit. But the charm seems to be real when he talks to Melissa McCarthy, which makes it that much more nice. It makes it fun, makes it nice, you know what I mean? But Melissa McCarthy, this truly is the role of a lifetime for her. She is so, so good. She is funny, but mean. You know, she is witty and biting. I don't know, it's just, like, it is funny, but it's not a comedy. It's, it's, it's more of like a dramedy, I guess, is what people seem to be calling it, those, those things these days, right? And it's just so, it's well-written, it's well-paced, and maybe because, again, I talk about this all the time on the podcast about the idea of expectations. I went in with, like, moderate expectations, not with zero, but with moderate expectations, middling, medium expectations, and it blew me away. Can you ever forgive me 
right now is probably number three, but if I feel like if I were to rewatch it, compare it with the next two movies, it might go up a little bit because it's creative. It tells the story in a succinct way. It has some elements of loss and tragedy to it because you know Lee is struggling and she knows it's the wrong thing to do to Forge, but she enjoys it because she's finally, not, not only is she getting paid for it, but people are saying to her, wow, you can really feel the warmth here. You can really tell this or here. You can really go, you can really understand this. And that's exactly what she was going for because she wrote them, not the original authors. And yet they're being passed off as real. And of course the movie actually ends with after she's been sentenced and she gets a community hours and she doesn't actually go to jail. But, uh, the movie ends with her going into a forgery, like like not a forgery shop. (laughs) That's no, no such thing as a forgery shop, but, uh, thanks a lot for that show. But, um, she goes into a antiquity shop or a bookstore of some kind where they're selling old copies of, you know, correspondence. And there's a framed copy of one of the things that she herself forged. And she tells the, the store owner about it, who is very disappointed because it was one of his more valuable pieces. And the movie ends, they're walking away. And then the guy, the, the store owner walks out to the storefront and he picks it up, takes it off the shelf to put it away. And then he looks at it and he looks around and then he puts it back on the shelf and then he walks away and the movie ends. So I guess the idea is that to go back to the idea of authenticity is that if no one can tell, does it really matter? If, if, if really no one can tell and you get enjoyment out of it, does it matter if it's real or not? I would argue it doesn't. And I hope that doesn't make you think I'm some kind of unscrupulous dickhole, but uh, I, I do feel like that is the message at the core of this movie. That's the question it's asking, and my answer might be different from yours, but that's the whole point, right? It's, it's, it's evoking those kind of reactions. So if you find that interesting, if you like Melissa McCarthy, if you like watching comedies, if you like watching good movies, you will like Can You Ever Forgive Me? This next movie is one of the more fun movies I saw, Tiff. It's, it's, it's such, a, such an intense movie, and you'll probably hear me use that word throughout the review because I think it does really describe it really, really well. So, oh man, I just want to talk about the review right now, but let's get to this next clip I want you to hear from this movie, Steve McQueen's Widows. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. You know, after winning Best Picture uh, for 12 Years a Slave in 2013, right? Steve McQueen, who I mentioned is the director, he was viewed as one of the more talented movie makers in Hollywood, right? He got the Turner Prize, which according to the definition is the highest award given to a British visual artist. He was named later on to the Time 100 in 2014. He's essentially now the Steve McQueen. Like, he is the one you think of when you say Steve McQueen instead of the white film star who died in 1980, you know, from Bullet and The Great Escape and so on. And Despite all of that, he's actually not made a movie since 2013. It's kind of crazy, right? Like, you think after getting all those awards and accolades, you'd make more than one movie in five years. But Widows is the first movie he's made since 2013. And, you know, his latest movie is is very intense, like I said. It's a crime drama, very sleek crime drama that keeps your attention until the very final shot. And it kind of proves that Steve McQueen can do anything he wants. That's kind of why I like it. He can do anything he wants. He... It's just so talented. I think after watching Widows, I was already on board with 12 Years a Slave, but after watching Widows, I'm in, you know? Anything Steve McQueen makes, I'll go watch. It's just, 
To me, it's the work of an auteur, just having a blast. And I don't know if you guys remember the idea of auteurship. We talked about this with Adnan Verk from Cinephile, you know, ESPN Cinephile movie podcast. And that's pretty cool that uh, that Adnan, like, he didn't really think that auteurship was a thing, right? And I feel like it is. But if Steve McQueen is an auteur, the, the script, which he actually wrote alongside Gone Girl author slash screenwriter Gillian Flynn, he kind of pokes some fun at it, right? So early on, uh, Robert Duvall's character... Uh, Tom Mulligan speaks of the son, uh, who is a uh, aspiring politician, Jack Mulligan, who's played by Colin Farrell, right? And they go back and forth on Jack's latest acquisition. An abs- it's like this abstract, kind of goofy-looking painting worth thousands of dollars. And Jack says the painting is art. Tom says it's wallpaper. It's art. It's wallpaper. Like, what is it? Like, you know, what is art, right? Or what? what is this piece that, you know, what someone thinks is art, someone else thinks it's not, right? And I guess it was a funny slash light scene in the middle of these intense proceedings, but I thought it was funny because it was really just Steve McQueen having some fun at his own expense, right? The movie itself focuses on a group of widows, <laughs> surprised, right? Uh, after their criminal husbands die during a heist, and uh, the women embark on a heist of their own to repay their late husband's deaths right so the acting is just top-notch and there's no surprise the cast has viola davis michelle rodriguez liam ne- liam neeson elizabeth debicki john bernthal carrie coon brian tyree henry daniel kaluuya and of course like i mentioned robert Duvall and colin farrell that's a stellar cast that's so good Eller, every single scene just like brims with energy right and as usual viola davis brings this like this, this steely-eyed intensity to her role as Veronica Rawlings, and somehow it's still undercut by the sadness that her husband is gone. Her husband is the Liam Neeson's character, and it lends Veronica this, this softness that you don't expect from someone planning a major height, especially if you watch a trailer where she's very intense kind of thing. I love it. It's so good. It's, it's also cool that I thought they just very normalized a black woman and a white man being married and having a loving relationship. I love that as a, as a minority, maybe. And I loved it because it was, they didn't call attention to it. It just, it's just there. It happens and they don't comment on it. It's just like any other marriage, which of course it is in real life, but because it doesn't happen in Hollywood so much, it's so interesting to me that they did, they did that. And Steve McQueen, love you so much for doing that, man. Keep doing it. Right. Um, Acting-wise, though, the two standouts of the film, however, are Elizabeth Debicki and Daniel Kaluuya, okay? When the film begins, we see all the women with their husbands in some fashion, right? They deal with everyday life, right? And at a store, lying in bed. And uh, Debicki is shown with a black eye while her husband, Florek, who is uh, John Bernthal, who's really just cameoing in this movie, he gives her this dangerous look over breakfast, right? And you know you know from that look and from the, the, the couple of lines of dialogue they exchange with one another and then later on the lines of dialogue that... She exchanges with um, uh, her mother later on in the movie that this is a woman who has suffered at the hands of men, right? And later on, you, she, she's actually suffered at the hands of her own mother, and, and she just decides that she won't suffer anymore. And I don't want to really spoil it any more than that because it's so good, right? And then on the other side, Daniel Kaluuya, who of course is the star of Get Out, and he was in Black Panther as well. He brings this this terrifying swagger to Jatem. And you have to think of like, I love you, right? Like in French, Jatem, right? That's how you say his name. He's like the enforcer brother of De- uh, Brian Tyree Henry's character, Jamal, right? And Jamal is the political opponent for the ward of Chicago that Jack Mulligan, who is Colin Farrell's character, they're running against each other, right? And Khalid is he's so menacing, right? The half-lidded gaze... 
the creepy smile, his physical presence. He just imposes on every character who wrongs him or even just looks at him wrong way. He's the gangster of the worst kind. And Daniel Kaluuya brings him to life in a way that's just amazing. He is my, I think he's my favorite part of this movie. He's so, so good. And I think Steve McQueen takes all those acting performances from Viola Davis, from Liam Neeson, from Debicki and Kaluuya and Farrell and Duvall and so on, right? Cynthia Erivo, Michelle Rodriguez, right? He takes all those performances and he weaves the narrative, the film and the performances together with the narrative of Chicago. And I guess even if you want to go even bigger, America, right? As, as well as you can do. There's a scene, there's a great scene. It's not subtle, but I, I love it, right? Uh, where Jack Mulligan and his his like hot assistant get into a car and they drive through Chicago, right? And they, and yet usually in scenes like that, the camera follows them inside the car and it kind of cuts between the assistant and the boss, kind of talking to each other. You see their faces; they're sitting across from one another, maybe in some kind of limo. And yet it stays on the outside of the car and eavesdrops almost on their conversation as we see the neighborhood change from the projects where they were to gentrified mansions where the car stops. Everything in the film is like this, right? Issues of race, class, gender, they all come to a head, whether it's black men being treated poorly by white politicians, police officers being on the take and police brutality, women being invisible because they are less than, quote unquote, men. You know, while it's all it's all excellent, it's all very relevant, especially in 2018, maybe my only real complaint is that, like I said before, it's not very subtle. It's a bit on the nose, right? But regardless, everything in this movie holds your attention. Right up until the last few scenes, and the last, the last like maybe the last scene of the movie, where the last, the last area where this, where the film takes place, it almost likes it's almost like McQueen is letting you take your breath. You're holding your breath of the whole movie, you don't even realize it, and then you finally let out your breath because you're like, holy crap, that was intense, right? Like I said, intense is a word I use a lot. It's just beautifully shot, gripping, and you'll be on, you'll, you'll be on the edge of your seat the whole way through, and. I, don't worry, though, because it's, it's such a fun ride, and you have to go see this movie. It is one of the best movies of the year, and if you love movies, you will like Widows. I guess when I said 45 minutes, I, and, I, and then I kind of immediately corrected myself, I knew we would be going past 45 minutes, so I'm very sorry. You guys know I like to keep that podcast a little short on the shorter side because, you know, people listen to this on their, like, commute or while they're driving. or I mean, that's the same thing, but you know what I mean, like, while they're doing things, and I feel like 45 minutes is a good marker, so I'm sorry for going past that. We'll wrap up really quickly once we're done this last review, so let's get right to that review. And this, like I said, is probably my favorite movie of TIFF. I want to rewatch it, because I, have, I haven't seen it since TIFF. These are my notes that I've had, and I, you know, I've, I've rewatched a lot of the media stuff since then to be, kind of be a refresher in my mind for this review, but all that to say... This is definitely the favorite movie, my favorite movie at TIFF. So without further ado, Green Book. Yeah. Some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South? There's going to be problems. Promise me you're going to write me a letter. Promise. Green Book might be one of the more interesting movies shown at TIFF because it didn't really start the playing, like, the showtimes right away, right? All the big-time movies were played for the press in the first couple days. I think the press, truthfully, only need to be there for maybe, like, not for the whole the whole festival, maybe only maybe the, like, maybe the first, like, like I want to say the, the last 
for three or four days are really just for the public only. There are no press showings during those last days. So if you are a member of the press and you need to leave, a lot of them do actually leave after all the press screenings are done because after that, really it's just if you missed one, then you have to go see it with like the with like the rest of the people who get normal TIFF tickets, like people who are not members of the press or industry rather. And Green Book didn't really start playing until kind of midway through the festival, right? And it clearly immediately captured people's attentions. Like, people loved Green Book. I went to see this movie right before they announced the People's Choice Award, the Grolsch People's Choice Award, and it essentially it essentially looked like it was going to be Roma, which I have not seen yet. It's coming to Netflix, and it's, it's apparently looking like it's going to be a, a big, heavy contender at the Oscars this year. Big Netflix movie, big get for Netflix. We'll talk about that on another episode. But it looked like Roma... A Star is Born, and maybe Widows. Those are the three movies that look like were going to be major contenders for the People's Choice Award. And traditionally, the People's Choice Award has gone on to either great box office success or success at the Oscars. Sometimes both. Sometimes one or the other. But it's it's rare for the movie to, that's, that's, that gets chosen as the People's Grolsch, the Grolsch People's Choice Award. I, I know I keep screwing that up, but the Grolsch People's Choice Award for it not to be successful in some fashion, right? And... Green Book was kind of a dark horse candidate, and it won. And it's not hard to see why, because this movie is very crowd-pleasing. It's very, it's very funny. It's heartwarming. It's heartfelt. It's serious, but it's not serious at the same time. You know, it's just everything about it is, feels profound in some way. And here, let me explain the plot to you real quickly. Bare bones description of the plot. Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali are the two stars of this program of this movie and Viggo Martinson's character is a Tony is a rough and tumble guy you know he's a bit of a con man there's a scene where we learn kind of exactly what kind of man he is at the beginning he's a bit of a racist doesn't like uh black folk apparently this movie set in the 60s and he's from you know he's from like the boroughs of New York I believe he's from Queens I want to say I'm not sure if, I'm not a hundred percent sure but he's from you know he's not from Manhattan he's from the boroughs of New York City and he's very much Italian. He's kind of racist, like I said. Rough and tumble guy, beats up people for money. <laughs> and, you know, his family's been on, fallen on a bit of a hard time, so he takes a job working for the doc, who is Mahershala Ali's character, a black piano player. And not just any piano player, okay? This guy is a virtuoso, as they say. He is just brilliant, just brilliant at his job. And he is embarking along with... Uh, Two other members, it was a trio, I believe, uh, uh, two string players and a piano player. And they embark on a tour of the Deep South. Now, of course, even now that might raise some eyebrows, but of course, back in the 60s, for a black man to go tour in the South, that was a pretty big deal. So he hires someone not to just be his driver, but to be his bodyguard, someone who will sort out his problems for him, someone who will get his run his chores and his errands for him because he knows he might not be able to go out there. So as you might imagine, this is a story about a racist who has to, who, who, who willingly signs up to work with a black man thinking that he's going to hate it, but only does it for the money. And of course, about how their relationship changes, about how both of them learn about each other, about how this high society black guy learns about, you know, how the lower class lives because he's always been relatively wealthy. It's about how, you know, this rough and tumble white Italian immigrant learns about, you know, the struggle of minorities and how they are treated by, 
racist white folk down in the South. You know, it's maybe because I'm a minority and I, I feel like I've talked about this before when I talk about movies like even like Black Panther and how you like, even though I'm not black, you still feel like you can relate to it because you're a minority, because the fact of the matter is minorities get treated differently. Right. And I'm excited to talk about this when we talk about Creed 2 in a couple of weeks. But I, I do honestly think that that's why it appealed to me so much. But it's not just the fact that I dealt with these these kind of topical issues, but that it's about growth. And there's there's a warmth there. And I think really the chemistry between Viggo Mortensen and Marshall Ali is just so shockingly good. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be shocked because they're both such talented actors that any actor of their caliber could probably, you know, act and, and show some decent chemistry with their co-stars. But they're really, really good together. And... The comedy is great. Linda Cardellini is uh, Viggo Mortensen's character's wife, right? And she's fantastic in it. And I just feel like I, to go too, too, more, too much more into detail would be to spoil some of the really good parts of the movie. And as you heard, you know, in the little intro snippet there, it's just, it's a generally an intense, and to borrow a phrase from the Widow's Review, an intense review, but also, or an intense movie, but also a feel-good movie, right? And it ends on a very high note. And even though it ends on, a, on one of those kind of like montages, like so-and-so went on to do this and so-and-so went on to, you know, work this job. And, you know, those kind of like title card montage things that show at the end of movies like that. Even though I'm not a huge fan of that, actually they did that in Can You Ever Forgive Me Now that I think about it. Even though I'm not a huge, huge fan of that, I thought it was really cool. And because at the end of it, you see how these characters have profoundly changed one another and how they profoundly change the people around them, how they are both better people for it. And I think that is one of the best messages of this movie. And in case you're interested, Green Book, the title of this movie, it, it's, it's not, not that it's a throwaway thing, but it's not as, it's not as um, prevalent as you might think, but it's called Green Book because back in the 60s, uh, people of color had to stay in their own hotels. They weren't allowed to stay in the nice hotels. They had to stay in the hotels that were like for colored people, right? So... They weren't allowed to stay in the normal hotels, so all of the hotels that they could stay in were listed in this small little booklet, and of course, it was called The Green Book. And it's just sad because you know that that's not something, that's not cool, it's not okay, but they have to deal with it, right? They, they couldn't avoid that, and it was about Viggo Mortensen's character, even though he himself is also an, an outsider, being an immigrant, an Italian immigrant, he never had to deal with that kind of thing, right? So all that to say... Green Book tackles a lot of different issues. It tackles issues of race. It tackles issues of class. It tackles issues of sexuality later on. It tackles issues of gender as well. And it ha- this all kind of come together. And there's this great scene at the end of the movie where, and it's, it's in the trailer too, where you see um, Dr. Shirley is uh, Mahershala Ali's character's name. And you see him playing the piano on stage. And he's wearing his like, coattails, his fancy tuxedo. And it's just... It's so good because they're friends and they didn't start out that way. Anyways, I don't want to harp on this movie too much because if I do, if I, I'll, I'll talk about the, the, the plot and stuff and that'll just ruin it for everyone. But Green Book is, I feel like is a dark horse in the awards season race. If that's what you're thinking, if, you know, again, shouldn't talk about it so much, but I love it. So eh, here we go, right? It's definitely going to be a dark horse contender. I don't know that it's enough to win Best Picture or even any acting awards, but it'll be a movie that, is covered more because it's going to be nominated for stuff, and that means it's going to be seen by more people, and I think that's a good thing. That is why I think it's at the top of my list. Even though it's probably not going to win a lot of stuff, it's my favorite because it tackles so many important things, and a lot of people are going to learn about it, and that is important, I think. So 
if that appeals to you, or if it doesn't and you just like a funny, good interplay between two talented actors, you should go see Green Book. Woo! That was a marathon of talking. I, if you're still listening, good for you. Because that means you listen to me talk for almost an hour. Just me, right? So interspersed with some music and some clips from movie trailers. So I hope you liked it. But um, I uh, no, in all seriousness, I love doing the podcast. I'm again really sorry for being away for so long. Uh, I won't have that happen again. Since TIFF ended, okay? I have not been to the movie theaters that much because Widows, First Man, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Green Book, A Star is Born... Of course, The Predator, White Boy Rick, uh, you know, a lot of these movies are actually have gone in and come out of theaters because, you know, the movie cycle goes on and on and on. Widows, I think, is in theaters now. Green Book is in theaters now. First Man is still in theaters. Can You Forever Forgive Me is still in theaters. So, you know what I mean? Like, these movies are now in theaters. So, you know, if you're just coming to the podcast for the first time now and you're listening to the review, I hope you, I hope this does take you to the movie theater to watch it. Or, conversely, you went to the movie theater and watched it and are now listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast, for which I thank you. But so I guess it worked out timing wise in the end. Uh, but still, I won't let it happen again. Since I went to TIFF, uh, like I was saying, I, la- I last saw Venom, Bad Times at the El Royale, and Bohemian Rhapsody. Those are the last three movies I've seen in theaters. Okay. And they're such wildly different movies. It's they're so fascinating. But I'm very excited to talk about it. And I, I have a feeling that by the time we do the next episode of this podcast, I'll have seen maybe a couple more. So we'll do another quick rundown episode. Okay, how's that sound? So we'll do another one. Not so long as this one. A little quicker because I feel like, I mean, like, how much can you really say about Venom? Probably not a lot. Quick spoiler. It's as bad as you probably thought it was. Okay. That's all I'll say on Venom for now. I'll leave the other two for, for the other episode. That's my tease. That's the tease, as they call it, in the biz, right? But uh, thank you so much for still listening. I always very much appreciate it. Please leave me some reviews, uh, some comments if you like. You can always reach me on Twitter at SNSAlley, which is spelled S-N-S-A-L-L-I. You have been listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Show. Have a great night.